everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, and formerly I was a Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere. And before that, I was the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. And the American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. In today's episode, the fourth of our year-long series, we will explore coral reefs, which is a super topic for the middle of summer as coastal tourism around American coral reefs kicks into high gear. So first, a few facts. Uh, Coral reefs contribute significantly to the U.S. economy through areas such as dive tourism, which is going to be in June's podcast, uh, or was in, uh, fisheries, which is going to be in August's podcast, and contributions to coastal resilience, which will be in our November show. And local economies also receive billions of dollars from visitors to reefs through diving tours, recreational fishing trips, hotels, restaurants, and other businesses based near reef ecosystems. From tourism to marine recreation and sport fishing, coral reefs play an important role in these economies and in countries all around the world. By one estimate, coral reefs provide economic goods and services worth $375 billion each year. And NOAA suggests that coral reefs in Southeast Florida alone have an asset value of $8.5 billion, generating $4.4 billion in local sales, $2 billion in local income, and 70,400 full and part-time jobs. And the fish that grow and live in coral reefs are a significant food source for people worldwide. In the United States, about half of all federally managed fisheries depend on coral reefs. And NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Service estimates that annually commercial value of U.S. fisheries from coral reefs is about $100 million. And the number is uh, about the same for recreational fisheries based on coral reefs. So Uh, really significant contributions to our American blue economy, but their future is challenged by a variety of factors, including bleaching, disease, ocean warming. We'll we'll describe some of these and discuss them today and talk about how partnership science and technology will keep our coral reefs viable through the 21st century. Now, personally, my first encounter on a coral reef was in 1980 in Hawaii. I was snorkeling off of Oahu and I was hooked from that moment on. I became scuba certified in 1986, and I've been diving on coral reefs ever since, including in Florida, the Bahamas, everywhere in the Caribbean, Mexico, Honduras, even in the Arabian Gulf in Oman and the Arabian Sea in Bahrain, and uh, over to the east off Okinawa, Japan, Guam, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, and one of my favorites, Palau. And I know I used my position to shine a spotlight or maybe a dive light on coral reefs, I conducted site visits on on restoration work we were doing in Calabria, Puerto Rico, and I was just a vocal champion for our coral reef conservation program and its reauthorization by Congress. And uh, and I really was excited about some of the coral reef partnerships we forged, like the one with National Marine Sanctuaries of American Samoa and Republic of Palau. And uh, and I even led a strategy we developed to combat the stony coral tissue loss disease outbreak in Florida, which I know we'll discuss too. And so the the areas we're going to cover today are conservation, protection, restoration, as well as the ecosystem and economic impacts. And I could not have a better panel to join me today 
than the six individuals that I will introduce here. Uh, first off is Dr. Erica Toll from Linker Technologies. She's the program coordinator for the National Coral Reef and Monitoring Program. And she's my old shipmate and great friend from NOAA. Thanks for joining us, Erica. Hi, Admiral. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Also, we have Dr. Joshua Feingold, who's a professor in the Department of Marine and Environmental Sciences at Nova Southeastern. And I got to know Joshua because he was my oldest daughter's instructor for one of her first marine biology classes, and she loved it. Joshua, thanks so much for being here. Uh, you're welcome, Admiral. And it was a pleasure uh, instructing your daughter. And I very much look forward to contributing in this podcast. Super. Now, we also have Dr. Mike Goldberg, who is co-founder of iCare and owner of Key Dives in Isla Mirada, Florida. Mike, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be a part of this group. Quite honored. Nice. Also, a good friend of mine who I've really enjoyed watching uh, do wonderful things for people and reefs, and that is Jim Ritterhoff, the executive director for Forest Blue. Jim, it is fantastic to have you join us. Uh, thank you so much, Admiral. I'm, I'm really uh, honored to be a part of this distinguished uh, panel today. Indeed. And uh, rounding things out is Kevin O'Brien. He is the president of the Papahanaumokuakea Marine Debris Project, Incorporated, and formerly worked in our marine debris program in the Pacific at NOAA. Aloha, Kevin. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And also, I'm really pleased to have Dr. Michael Crosby, President and CEO of Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium, join us today. Michael, thanks for being here. It's a real pleasure to be with, with you, Admiral, and, and uh, your colleagues on this call as well. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. We have a great team. Let's go ahead and get started. And I want to start with Erica, my old friend and uh, program coordination officer from NOAA. And uh, I'm really interested in your background and what led you to become the Coral Reef, the National Coral Reef Monitoring Program Coordinator. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got there and what you do now? Thanks, Admiral. Like I said, I'm really happy to be here with you today. So thanks for having me. Um, I have a PhD in coral reef ecology from the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine Atmospheric Science. And my research was focused on how corals can be resilient to climate change stress. One of the things I struggled with a little bit at the end of my PhD was how can I make the most impact if I want to make a difference with respect to coral reef conservation? Ultimately, even though I loved research, I felt that a career in academia wouldn't ultimately be fulfilling for me because I felt like only my own peers, other scientists essentially, would be reading my scientific papers. And I really wanted to find a job where I could combine science and data with some policy as well as outreach opportunities. Um, and, you know, potentially be able to reach more people outside of the science community. So now I honestly feel very lucky to say I have my dream position. I coordinate the National Coral Reef Monitoring Program at NOAA, which is part of NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program. And that really allows me to blend coral reef data collection and um, report writing all the things I was doing when I was doing research, but also gives me an opportunity to have some educational and advocacy um, opportunities, too. Well, that's wonderful, Erica. I remember talking to you about you potentially taking this position, and the, I just think it's very uh, commendable that you really wanted to do good, and uh, having that role you do certainly does it when our coral reefs need that kind of monitoring and support like never before. And, and you talked about research and, and also education, and I think that's a great point to uh, come over to Joshua, who's a, a professor at Nova Southeastern, who's an expert in corals, and 
And Joshua, I'm, I'm very interested in your role in inspiring the next generation who are who we're handing the state of our coral reefs and the future of them um, to, to, to do good for or not. And tell me about what you do and your thoughts about your role as a professor there. Oh, thank you, Admiral. Um, actually, that is my, my greatest, um, the greatest benefit of my life is contributing to the knowledge of our next generation. Uh, and like yourself, my first experience uh, in coral reefs was in 1980, uh, but down in Key Largo. And it's been uh, a little bit of a sad journey seeing the changes that we've uh, observed, both in the, the reefs there in our own country, as well as reefs around the world. Um, I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of work in the Caribbean as well as in the Eastern Pacific. And uh, there's mostly uh, sad news regarding the trajectory of coral populations, but there are certainly things we can do to help uh, minimize that loss and uh, hopefully contribute to a, a better future for all of us. The, the challenge, of course, is trying to, to mitigate uh, anthropogenic impacts uh, and I think I got a lot of that training too, like Dr. Tell. Uh, I was trained at the University of Miami Rosensteel School uh, under Peter Glynn, who is probably one of the top coral scientists in the world. And uh, even though I am in academia, I also feel that we can contribute uh, substantially to the knowledge base to help make uh, important management decisions and guide our policies towards the future. Right. Very good, Joshua. I know how important that is. That data is critical to informed decisions about protection, conservation, and, and regulations associated with that. Um, well, wonderful. That's, that's great. And I know from my daughter's experience in your class that uh, she is motivated to, to do good and uh, work in this field when she graduates. And I, I couldn't be more thrilled about that. So thank you. Now, uh, Michael, you're, you're in this area too, and you cover a lot of territory. In addition to research, you have the aquarium at, at Moat, uh, and I, I uh, and so I, you have both an outreach role, but also the research role. And um, I, yeah, what, what, tell me a little bit about what moats, where Moat stands on coral reefs and not just Florida, but um, around the Caribbean and the world. Sure, happy, happy to do so, Admiral. Um, Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium um, was established in 1955. It's a completely independent nonprofit marine research and science education institution that for over 66 years now has really pushed the frontiers of, of science for what, what I think we all would agree is a noble cause, which is science-based conservation and sustainable use of our oceans. Um, it's a rather significant enterprise in that we have over 260 staff, um, 37 PhD level scientists, and they're conducting research at our six different campuses um, in Florida, as well as with our partner institutions around the world. And Coral reefs are a significant focus for many of our research and science education programs, um, not only in the United States, but throughout the wider Caribbean, Pacific Islands, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. And just to offer a little bit of context for uh, the perspective I'm coming from, uh, I was born in Florida, and uh, I lived in Key West as a, as a very little boy. And I remember my father telling me, literally on his deathbed, about how incredible those corals were that he used to uh, snorkel and dive on. Back in those days, the living coral cover was about 60%, 6-0%. It is now less than 5%. Um, a lot of the past impacts that really caused a dramatic decline over those decades 
Um, a lot of that has been dealt with in the Florida Keys anyhow, in terms of point source, non-point source pollution, uh, poor fishery uh, practices, even some ship groundings. A lot of that has been taken care of through public outreach, uh, education, um, and some of the uh, fishermen down there are the greatest champions now for a conservation of those resources. But the coral got so stressed that now we have the climate in impact changes, the, the sort of left and right punch of increasing ocean temperatures and uh, increasing ocean acidification or decreasing pH that have now really severely stressed our coral. And when you add on top of that, the stony coral tissue loss disease that has been happening in the Florida Keys now for about the last five years, every inch of the coral reef in the Florida Keys is now impacted. It's spread like wildfire. It has over a 90% mortality rate. Our coral reefs in the Keys now are really um, slipping into a state of functional um, extinction, if you will. Um, but I think that there, it's it's not it's not as desperate as it sounds because um, I really think that science and advances in science especially over the last five to 10 years, has really changed the entire paradigm uh, for coral restoration. Um, and new technologies such as the uh, microfragmentation and reskinning technologies combined with um, our ability to identify um, resilient strains of the native coral species, resilient strains um, to increasing temperature, uh, acidification, and especially um, to this uh, disease has really, as I say, changed the paradigm. And we are now able to use the science, to use the technology, to partner with communities, to partner with other nonprofits, other uh, academic institutions, and launch into a massive coral restoration initiative that I am incredibly confident um, we're going to succeed in. We have, we've already demonstrated that we can rapidly accelerate um, the sexual maturity uh, achievement of corals, uh, the massive corals that take decades to reach sexual maturity to be able to spawn. Um, we've demonstrated in the last five years um, that an outplant um, that we established uh, in the Keys over a five-year period um, was able to grow to the size of a, a mature coral and actually spawn. Um, we have indeed, we've closed the entire life cycle uh, of coral, everything from spawning uh, and outgrowing them in the laboratory, identifying the genetically resilient strains, uh, planting them out on the reef um, and seeing them go through this whole um, sexual reproduction uh, process. And that's the ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to bring these coral reefs back from the brink of functional extinction and create a self-perpetuating ecosystem once again and put us all out of business. <laughs> I like the way you put it, and I, I definitely want to see us get there too. In fact, uh, uh, Michael, thank you. I remember uh, just recently I went diving in the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, and there's a little protected portion of the sanctuary called Eastern Dry Rocks. And I, I really was just appalled at the state of the reef health there. And, and that's why the sanctuary has um, launched this, their mission iconic reef restoration effort. And, and, and I think, you know, those are some of the positive steps, like you said, that will get us there. I know another one 
um, actually is being performed in a fantastic way uh, by the folks at Force Blue under Jim Ritterhoff's leadership. And Jim, tell us about Force Blue and maybe your 100 Yards of Hope effort that really addresses what Michael was talking about. Sure thing, Admiral. Um, so Force Blue is the only uh, nonprofit 501c3 organization in the world that retrains and redeploys former special operations veterans, all military trained combat divers to work alongside scientists and environmentalists on marine conservation missions. So it's really a win-win. Um, obviously you have these highly trained, uh, skilled individuals with you know, millions of dollars of training and, and working in underwater and you know, in, in marine environments. And uh, it, it makes no sense to just put that on a shelf, right? Especially when there's a fight um, to be fought, you know, to, to protect our reefs, our oceans. So uh, they provide an amazing workforce, you know, when we partner with scientific organizations. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a continued sense of service for them, right? It gives them a lot of our veterans, particularly in the special operations community, you know, have, they run at such a high tempo. Um, they have trouble in their, in their transition out of the military. Um, they're servicemen and women, and that's all they want to do. So this Force Blue and, you know, these ocean projects that we get involved with are a way for them to kind of continue serving something larger than themselves. So it's very, uh, very therapeutic. The 100 Yards of Hope project in particular that you, you referenced is something that um, we've been working on for the past two years. Uh, it began in 2019 uh, with the NFL and the Super Bowl in Miami, Super Bowl 54. Uh, there was a thought, you know, the NFL likes to leave legacy projects whenever it has a big event, you know, like a Super Bowl in the local community. So they had come up with the idea of actually uh, out planning a uh, hundred pieces of staghorn coral, just more as a photo op kind of uh, it was symbolic of the NFL's 100 season and the Super Bowl in Miami. And they got Force Blue and our, our veterans involved to, to actually do the out planning. But what was really interesting is sort of the convening power around the NFL and, and Force Blue. We were able to get some very big brands, you know, like uh, Pepsi and Verizon, companies like that, that had never been involved in anything to do with coral reef restoration on board. And, you know, we took a look at it and said, well, geez, this was easy. We could do 100 pieces. Let's do 100 yards. And it was just very fortuitous that the, the um, Super Bowl for two consecutive years was in Florida. It moved to Tampa for last year's game. That gave us the opportunity to tell the story of 100 Yards of Hope and the partnerships, uh, because the interesting thing is, while the Super Bowl was moving west from east to west, from Miami to Tampa, about 90% of the corals that we were out planting were actually coming from Tampa and the Florida Aquarium over to the Miami side. So there was this really interesting through line that the NFL uh, celebrated, and we made a documentary about it. And... Um, you know, it's just it's it's just been a, a home run, and we're hoping that you know it, it inspires other people to you know want to get involved in the fight as well. Well, exactly, Jim. I, I couldn't be more excited about that effort, and thank you for inviting me to the Florida screening of that fantastic film. And I, I loved uh, meeting some of your teammates and just seeing the good work you're doing. And 
And that, that's, that's kind of like what Michael talked about is that uh, there are, there are ways we can do this. We're not throwing in the towel. We, we can get at this and turn our reefs around. And in fact, it was Erica who first connected me with your team who I've stayed close with and followed and tried to support for a couple of years now. So it's, it's sort of nice to have everybody back together. Uh, and on this topic of conservation, restoration, and, you know, really hope and caring uh, about this, about our coral reefs, I want to go over to uh, Michael Goldberg at iCare and tell us about your organization and what you're doing to restore the reefs uh, on uh, Isla Mirada. iCare was created by me and my co-founder, Dr. Kylie Smith, with the idea of restoring the coral reefs here locally, but with a different twist and principally making reef restoration and coral restoration accessible to all recreational divers. We believe, and I personally believe, that our largest workforce are the tens of thousands of certified divers that hunger for giving back. Um, and we've been now operating for six months officially uh, and running trips every week. The idea is to make it accessible to recreational divers. And from my experience that has for the most part been unavailable to the majority of divers and so with my kind of a unique position that i have been in um, i have been diving here for decades um, I, I own a business here locally and i've been a long time keys resident and i have unique opportunity to put together some fantastic partners Moat Marine Laboratories provides us all of our corals and the science of these corals, as Dr. Crosby was stating earlier, is second to none. Um, we have multiple dive shops that are involved running trips every week, multiple dive shops financially supporting what it is that we're doing. Um, we have the, what I believe is the most famous fishing marina in the Keys, uh, Bud and Mary's Marina set aside waterfront access for Moat Marine to create the first and only onshore nursery here in the Upper Keys. Um, we have multiple businesses that are donating money. Um, the Offshore Fishermen's Association are now involved. The uh, City Council is now fund, beginning to fund what it is that we're doing. So those approaches by giving access to local divers, local businesses, divers throughout the country to be involved in restoration is the core of eye care. And on a side note, uh, we just filed three days ago, and I think Dr. Crosby is going to be interested to know this. We just filed our first six month report with NOAA. And I'm very proud to report that our survivorship rate or our survival rate of our coral outplants is at 95% as we speak. So not only is the science support, like Dr. Cosby was saying, but it's at the hands of your average diver. And so that's, that's what I care is. That is so great, Mike. What a good story. I, I knew that at NOAA, we were really working on to advance citizen science across the country in many areas. And that's really what you've been doing, but more in the conservation world. And I mean, your, your reach has been so significant that uh, for, you know, for the audience quickly, I, I came to know Mike 
because one of my former friends, you'll appreciate this, Jim, was uh, four-star Admiral Kurt Tidd, former commander of U.S. Southern Command, who happened to be diving and learn about your outfit and keen to support it, and that's what he's done. And he, he vectored you to me, and I was really grateful for that. So well done to you. Thank you. And that's great. Well, now, you know, I, I, this is, I, I invited someone who's a little bit sort of on the side of this issue, but, but not so much when you really learn about what he's done. And this is Kevin O'Brien, who was leading our marine debris program, our being NOAA's, in the Pacific. And, you know, I wanted to get Kevin's perspective here because the Pacific, and specifically the, the National Marine Monument, which will become a, a National Marine Sanctuary soon uh, in that region, has such, uh, some of our largest expanses of coral reefs, including Midway Island and Hawaii and others. And uh, the problem he was tackling was marine debris, plastics, fishing gear, and, and Kevin, you know, you, I, I was just delighted when I saw you on 60 Minutes a few years ago, uh, which is a quite high profile venue, um, showcasing or highlighting the importance of, of your work in the Pacific. And I wondered if you could comment a bit about the impact of, of marine debris on our coral reef systems out there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Tim. Um, so for, for the listener who may not be familiar with, um, with the Hawaiian archipelago, there's a uh, a string of uninhabited islands and atolls that stretch for about 1,300 miles to the northwest of the main populated Hawaiian islands. And this is what is now known as Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, uh, which Tim mentioned there is uh, is shortly going to be designated as a national marine sanctuary as well. And so uh, within that area, there's 583,000 square miles of ocean, reef, and, and, and island terrestrial area. And so it's an enormous, enormous region. Um, and 70% of all coral reefs in the United States exist within Papahanaumokuakea. So we're talking about a massive resource. And it's interesting because it's not a place that the public can go to. You have to have a permit to, uh, for research, conservation, or cultural activities um, to enter the, the National Monument. And so it doesn't experience tourism and it, not be, it may not be you know, thought of in the traditional economic sense in terms of the value of coral reefs. However, it has great value, you know, otherwise, um, which I think is, uh, you know, represented by an incredible diversity of species, endemism, um, essentially fully intact marine habitats and uh, serving as a sanctuary and perhaps a spillover resource for some of our uh, uh, coral reefs closer to the main populated islands. Um, but, you know, being separated from, from civilization, if you will, um, by hundreds or thousands of miles, Papahanaumokuakea still experiences, you know, it's an inordinate amount of impact from these, from these uh, anthropogenic effects. And so you have, um, you have plastics, uh, you know, drifting in from around the Pacific Rim, you have derelict fishing nets. And, you know, the, the impacts there are, are, are ones that we can actually mitigate. So, you know, this area experiences threats from, you know, climate change, uh, all, all sorts of these sort of big, larger, nebulous problems that we all know about are, that are facing our oceans. But the, the impacts of marine debris are actually the one issue that we can do something about. And so that's why our organization has, has chosen to pursue this, this work. Um, and so some of these impacts are really, um, you know, pretty, pretty um, uh, some of these impacts are, are, are not ones you'd normally think of. So plastics, obviously, you have... Uh, Shoreline plastics causing ingestion hazards to seabirds, mortality of seabirds due to uh, due to you know over ingesting these these plastics. 
But also you have the derelict fishing nets entangling some of our most protected species, like the Hawaiian monk seal, which is an endemic species. Uh, only 1,400 of them are left and 80% reside within the National Monument. And so every single one of these individuals counts and these derelict fishing nets provide a, a really, really hazardous situation for, for these animals in their habitat. But in addition to that, the, these derelict fishing nets also have an impact that, that nobody really sees, and that is impact to corals. And so they'll wash in from the open ocean and pass over the barrier reef of these atolls and then swirl around in these coral gardens, which are the lagoons found inside uh, the atolls in the monument, and snag upon the coral. It's just a perfect habitat for just uh, snagging all this stuff up. And then um, what can happen then is it can either break or abrade the corals or smother the corals and shade them out. As we all know, they're photosynthetic um, organism, the organisms that live inside corals. And so um, we actually published a paper last August attempting to quantify these impacts to coral reefs in Papahanaumokuakea using some innovative photogrammetry techniques, which I think was uh, uh, an early success uh, in terms of trying to document you know, and quantify these impacts to the coral reefs in, in, in a protected place like this. Well, that's just great work there, Kevin. Thanks for sharing that with us. You know, uh, I had this really nice job uh, called, I was the chair of the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force. And when I was uh, at a meeting uh, in Palau, uh, we had just talked about the state of coral in the Pacific and our reefs in the Pacific. And we just, we, it was clear to us that what was happening in Florida, you know, th there was an imperative to not let that spread to the Pacific. And so um, that led us to develop this strategy, a NOAA strategy for the storm of coral tissue loss disease response and prevention. And, um, and so Erica, I, I now in your role supporting the coral reef conservation program, I, I was wondering if you had, a, had an, if you made any contributions to that, that document. Thanks, Admiral. Yeah. So as your listeners may know, um, Atlantic and Caribbean coral reefs are facing an unprecedented outbreak of a disease called stony coral tissue loss disease. And it's characterized by rapid spread, um, really rapid tissue loss and high mortality rates. It was first reported on Florida's coral reef, as you mentioned, in 2014, but it's affected over half of all the stony coral uh, species in Florida and has since spread to the wider Caribbean region. Um, and so as the disease continues to spread, many questions about disease transmission are, are still persisting. And as you mentioned, concern about potential spread to Pacific coral reefs are, are rising. And, you know, the Pacific coral reefs have an even greater diversity of stony coral species, including many of the same coral families and uh, genera that are found in the Atlantic Caribbean region. So the current and potential threat to U.S. coral reefs is obviously of, of great concern. So the program that, that I manage, the National Coral Reef Monitoring Program, collects uh, information on coral species distribution, abundance, diversity, coral colony size, coral condition, you know, lot, lots of other um, metrics, you know, including benthic cover, habitat composition, reef structural complexity. And so, you know, these data are, are collected through diver-based surveys of shallow water reefs um, up to 30 meters. And they're at stratified random sites in all of our 10 U.S. coral reef areas. And so, you know, what the National Coral Reef Monitoring Program can, can inform are background or baseline levels of all coral diseases, not necessarily just stony coral tissue loss disease, but just sort of giving 
folks and managers a, a reference point for their local monitoring efforts. Um, we also can provide eyes in the water, if you will, over you know a large stratified random sampling area. And then when, if and when we identify what we believe to be stony coral tissue loss disease, we can then send local experts photos and uh, global positioning system or GPS site locations of any coral colonies that are potentially affected. And, you know, that, that can really be helpful because we, our program covers a very large area that, um, you know, can, can be hard for other groups to, to cover. Um, another really important thing is just informing local experts about sites with high coral density and high coral cover, as well as the size of vulnerable coral species that, to help inform other local monitoring efforts. Because we, what we do know is that sites um, that are particularly susceptible to stony coral tissue loss disease are often the sites with the highest coral density and highest coral cover. And, you know, one of the great things about a really vast um, coverage program like the National Coral Monitoring Program is we have archives of those sites that can really help um, with local monitoring. And then lastly, you know, just providing subject matter expertise. Um, if people need help designing a monitoring strategy that's going to be able to more robustly survey specifically for stony coral tissue loss um, disease, we're always happy um, to be involved and also to provide contextual data about the impacts of, of mortality on coral populations. Um, you know, by, by species where possible. So, you know, we're, we're always happy to collaborate. We have a lot of great partners and just big kudos to you uh, while you were at NOAA for um, implementing that strategy. Oh, you're too kind. Thanks, Erica. Well, you know, uh, in, in, in this whole topic of monitoring, studying, and actually um, developing techniques and uh, technologies to advance uh, coral reefs, I, I was really interested to hear and read about Moat Marine Labs work with genotype screening for resiliency to things like warming and pH variability. And so, Michael, you touched on that a bit, but would you mind uh, elaborating a tad and, and uh, t talking about some of that terrific technology and science behind your efforts? Yeah, very, very happy to do so. Um, we Moat, Moat is convinced uh, that there is only one way um, to bring back um, our coral reefs, uh, especially here in the Florida Keys uh, from the brink of functional extinction. And that is through um, identification of genetically resilient strains of the locally endemic uh, species. We've got a situation now with over 90% mortality rate of the uh, stony coral tissue loss disease. And this is affecting, by the way, the, the more massive corals, uh, the ones that weren't killed off earlier, the branching corals uh, decades ago, were killed off by another disease. Um, and so we've got a situation now where um, if you simply go out, and this is why I'm thrilled with, um, with the report that uh, Mike Goldberg, our partner there at iCares on Isle Murata, uh, reported on. The key is not just to go out and transplant. Um, transplanting coral to the wild is a fairly straightforward process um, that's why we can get combat wounded veterans. That's why we can get young scuba knots. That's why we can get uh, divers that are on a vacation out there, train them rapidly and get them in to plant these corals. The real trick is the science behind making sure what you are going to plant out there isn't going to die from what killed it in the first place uh, on that reef. And that's genetic resiliency. So we have um, really built a rather significant research facility uh, on our Summerlin Key campus. 
that is focused uh, in great part on identifying these um, resilient genotypes in all these different species. We've also uh, last year uh, built a new environmentally hardened national international coral gene bank that is really a Noah's Ark for preservation and expansion of, um, of coral genotypes. And we have what I believe is the largest uh, coral genotype holding outside of mother nature of over 1,600 genotypes from 17 different species. Uh, there we're um, growing another 3,600 additional genotypes uh, as well because genetic diversity, species diversity, and resilience in a very strategic initiative, and you mentioned it, Admiral, Mission Iconic Reefs is, is really at the point of the spear with all of that, is we have got to make sure that what we plant out there um, is actually going to survive and have that 95% survival rate after six months. Um, Moats coral, because they are genetically resilient, when we outplant them, we have incredibly high um, success rate after one year, two year, five years of being in the field. Those coral I talked to you about that for the first time within five years actually spawned after the planting normally would have taken 30 years to grow to sexual maturity. In the five years after we planted those coral, they survived two different bleaching events. They survived a category four hurricane going right over the top of them, and they survived stony coral tissue loss disease. That is the approach to restore these coral reefs, and it's based on good, sound genetic resiliency. Fantastic there, Michael. I love this. You know, if we're doing it for agriculture, let's do it for coral. And uh, I, I just couldn't believe the uh, statistics that uh, Michael Goldberg shared with me about uh, 90% survival ship. Is it, did I get that right, Mike? You sure did. And thank you very much to all the wonderful people at Moat Marine because we wouldn't be doing it without them. Uh, but this is a partnership, and that's why, Admiral, I'm so glad that you brought all of these different groups together because it's the partner. No one institution can possibly do this by themselves. It's a partnership between good sound science, uh, other nonprofits, community engagement. We're going to get together, and all of us together, we're going to bring these reefs back. I am with you there, Michael and Mike. In fact, uh, that's exactly right. I did think that I did believe in partnerships at NOAA, and that's what I'm working to carry forward here. Uh, and in fact, going to Jim Ritterhoff at Force Blue, you're a great example of this as well. I know I saw in the film um, you had uh, um, one of your your leads was from the Rosenstiel School at the University of Miami. That's Dr. Toll's alma mater, and. Uh, can you share a little bit about uh, what, what the university, how you teamed up with them to do, do that, this great work and what you're doing next? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, we, uh, as I mentioned, it was back in 2019 uh, and the NFL had come to us to uh, do something symbolic around the Super Bowl, which was this outplanning of, a, of 100 corals, right? And we connected with um, Dr. Diego Learman and Dalton Hesley at uh, the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School because they had a permit. We were looking for where are we gonna do this. They already had a permit there uh, off of Key Biscayne to do some outplanting. And um, so we got on board with them and also with the uh, Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science in Miami and had a press conference and went out and announced with the NFL and, and some of their partners in the Super Bowl host committee that we were gonna do this outplanting. 
And then that, it was such a success from everybody's perspective, just the event, that that's when we went back to the NFL and said, okay, now let's, let's do an entire football field of, of restoration and really make it a story that would bring in, you know, I, I'm just so encouraged whenever I hear people, you know, talking about partnership. And I agree with Dr. Crosby. It is, it is, a hundred, it is imperative that we find new ways to engage new stakeholders. You know, that's one of the, the things we're especially uh, proud about at Force Blue is that we're able to reach an audience of, you know, people who are um, sympathetic to uh, our veterans and some of the struggles they're facing that really don't know anything about coral or reef restoration. But if Navy SEALs and recon Marines and Air Force pararescuemen are involved, well, that's, that's interesting to them, right? So it brings in a whole nother, you know, in this very partisan sort of world that we live in right now, it, it, it brings in a whole nother um, audience. So the NFL has just been uh, an awesome partner. Um, we're actually talking, I have a call later today with them about uh, possibly doing a project out in California um, for next year's Super Bowl. And, um, you know, they've just, through, through them and, and some of their sponsors, like Pepsi, we're doing a uh, summer long called Coastal Conservation Ops with Pepsi Stronger Together, where we're going to be going all across the state of Florida and engaging communities in everything from sea turtle surveys to marine debris and ghost gear removal operations to coral monitoring. So, um, you know, you get someone like Pepsi on board and obviously just increases the visibility exponentially. So I'm all about partnership. You know, our, our motto is one team, one fight. And, and that's, that's how I think, you know, we're going to solve this. We're going to solve these problems. Well, sign me up there, Jim. I would love to support you and participate in any of that. Uh, Good, good work. Hey, this is interesting. You know, uh, I wanted to go back to Professor Feingold at Nova Southeastern University and uh, talking about partners, you know, they have a Guy Harvey Research Institute there and, and Guy Harvey is really well known as a marine artist and an oceanographer. And, um, and I, I don't know the exact sum, but I understand that there is a Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Ecosystems Research that was, I think, about a $50 million center that, that Guy Harvey supported. And uh, if I got that right, or if I didn't, uh, Joshua, can you share with us a little bit about, about the work there? Uh, it'd be my pleasure, Admiral. Uh, the building was actually uh, put together as part of the uh, Obama administration initiative for infrastructure spending. Uh, and it was a, a actually notable achievement. We got a, a rather large grant uh, but then it was also apparent that the grant had to have matching funds. So uh, we wound up having to match a, a rather substantial amount of money to put that facility together. And it is a, a rather impressive place. And it's a, my distinct honor and pleasure to work there. Um, we also have uh, a, a coral nursery program that's been pretty successful in getting corals out off of the, uh, into the reef tract in Broward County. And uh, I guess, you know, Broward is, doesn't receive as much attention as uh, Miami and Monroe here in, in South Florida because it's kind of at the uh, northern limit of coral growth. And that has been one of the foci of my studies is working with corals close to their uh, environmental limits. And I'm actually rather intrigued by some of the, the work that's been described by my colleagues on this podcast. Um, 
concerning, you know, getting how corals can be genetically engineered to be more resilient. I imagine that has to involve both the, uh, the coral itself as well as the uh, symbiont, the zooxanthellae. Um, and it makes me think of some of the work I've done in the Eastern Pacific because there it's sort of naturally depauperate. There are very few species, uh, though they can have a pretty high cover. And uh, I'm now becoming concerned by some of the uh, information mentioned by Dr. Tal about the wasting disease getting into the Pacific. And uh, perhaps I can follow up with you after the podcast to get some more specifics on that, because I will be traveling there shortly to do some monitoring. And perhaps there's some things I could keep my eye open for. Um, but this is all part of the puzzle, right? We want to collect information so we can make intelligent decisions moving forward uh, to preserve this incredible resource that we have. Well, indeed, Joshua. And actually, I will ask you one more follow-on question. Uh, where in the Eastern Pacific will you be going? Uh, the Galapagos Islands, uh, which is right on the equator in the Eastern Pacific. Um, even though it is on the equator, it's the coldest place at sea level on the equator. And uh, they, the corals there are, are challenged uh, not only by the generally cool conditions, but by a sort of aperiodic El Nino southern oscillation events that cause seawater warming. Uh, and, you know, add on top of that global climate change, and we have some thermal challenges to their very survival. And that's part of my long-term research program there is to monitor and uh, make recommendations to the National Park Service there about you know, how to move forward with things. Well, great. That's such a, that is important work. And I'm glad you shared that with us, especially because uh, my daughter, Laurel, has targeted that trip uh, to, uh, to join you. And, uh, and I want to just, again, thank you for um, giving our young, young people and students exposure to uh, learning about, about these important issues through, uh, I think, such an enriching and dynamic um, kind of hands-on way. I mean, what, what, what student, who on this podcast would not want to be in the Galapagos right now? So thank you. Well, if I could follow up one more thing, um, it makes me think of all of, the, all of the good work being expressed in this podcast as a way of uh, creating some kind of an awareness of our natural world. And, you know, what I love doing is getting students out there so they can see it for themselves. But if that's not, that's not always possible and, you know, sharing the information through, you know, this podcast, through other video means is a way to keep most of our population connected with these very important natural resources that I think deserve our preservation and, and respect. Well said there, Joshua. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and in fact, going back to Kevin O'Brien, uh, you know, that's, that's what I thought you uh, touched on very well. You, you, you mentioned coral, but all the other uh, the endemic species and um, aspects of marine ecology and ecosystems in the Pacific, um, and I'm curious. You know, you've been you've been you've been to Midway. Uh, is there any part of the whole Papahanaumokuakea monument that uh, is like you would just want to share with our listening audience that they might not know about any aspect about that? That's a that's a really great question, and um, I think it's so hugely important, especially for regions or areas that. The public is not allowed to visit. Uh, the, the communication of, of that ecosystem, I think, is extra important. And so we always lead with our organization and, and engaging with the public and outreach. We always lead with um, 
you know, what there is to love about a place. People don't protect what they don't love and they don't love what they don't know about. So if we can sort of bring these ecosystems to the public, uh, it goes a long way for, for generating support. And so with Papahanaumokuakea, um, I would just like to say it's probably the most um, incredible place on earth. It, it's like stepping back in time when you visit these uninhabited islands and reefs. It's a place, you know, where uh, the wildlife is unused to seeing humans, which I think is extremely rare in this day and age. It's a place where the seabirds will come up and land right on your head because they don't have any fear of humans. Where you can, you know, stand in ankle deep water right off the beach and 20 pound fish will swim around your legs. Uh, it, it, you know, it's that kind of place that you might imagine existed several hundred years ago, but it's hard to find these days. And you pair that, you know, the incredible species, um, you know, diversity. We have, we have 14 million seabirds of 22 species. It's the largest seabird rookery in the world. Um, you pair that with a really strong cultural connection to uh, Native Hawaiian culture. And, um, and, and, and this area plays really importantly into cultural and uh, uh, navigation, Hawaiian navigation narratives. And so you have this really rich uh, place. And um, sharing that with everyone, I think, is so important for, for its protection, conservation. That was great. Uh, and I like that you were able to expand upon that because I, 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 though we have a coral reef focus on the episode, it, coral reefs are something part of a larger uh, marine ecosystem and an environment that, um, that we all appreciate and enjoy. And, uh, and that's why I was really excited to get you on here. Th thank you. Um, in fact, uh, not to go down too much of a policy rabbit hole, but we'll go ahead and give it a shot. Uh, there are our national marine sanctuary systems across the country. We have one in Florida Keys. We have uh, one we expanded uh, at Flower Garden Banks off of Texas and uh, we being NOAA when I was there and um, a new one that we established in Malice Bay on the Potomac River and one just recently in Lake Michigan. And so uh, sanctuaries are a little bit different than monuments, which yours is now, where monuments are, are sort of directed by a presidential proclamation where a sanctuary is a more community-based process. I'm curious with Papahanaumokuakea becoming a sanctuary, do you think is that going to be a good thing for, for the environment and the people and that public awareness or not? You know, I really do. I think that um, the sanctuary designation process is really important, like you said, for bringing more community input into the management of the place. And especially in Hawaii with Papahanaumokuakea, it's it's so hugely important that you have, you know, input um, from from that you have input from, from everyone, and especially the Native Hawaiian community. And so when Obama expanded the monument in 2016, uh, he, he held some you know, community forums uh, just as a nod, I think, to that process, even though as a presidential proclamation or executive order, he didn't have to. But with the sanctuary designation, pulling in those community groups and the different priorities and the cultural components to management is really something that has to happen and I think is hugely important moving forward. There's just no way to separate the natural resource management from the cultural management in Hawaii. And so sanctuary designation is a really great way to sort of officiate that relationship. And so I, I really think it'll be a good thing. It'll also provide a, a bit more regulatory teeth, if you will, for enforcing violations within within the region. And I, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think that, that it's gonna be a good thing overall. 
Wow, Kevin, I'm so glad to hear that. You know, I, of course, I'm a little biased uh, based on my history as I share with you. I think the sanctuary program is just fantastic. And for the reasons you mentioned, and I, I love that aspect, that it will get more of the community uh, aware of and supporting that, that, that soon-to-be sanctuary and the whole system at large. And so I encourage the listening audience to dive into the National Marine Sanctuary System. Look up online, National Marine Sanctuary, you'll just see there are, there are national treasures as are coral reefs, and um, and I, I'm glad that they are being supported in this administration, just like we did in the past. And actually, so we just talked a lot about coral reefs, which I enjoy and can do all day, uh, and even more so if we were underwater on compressed air. But um, all of you have fantastic stories, and I kind of wanted to go around the horn a bit and just uh, ask you a few personal stories. And one is with Mike Goldberg. And Mike, you know, you're you're not a you haven't been a career diver or ecologist or biologist like some on the on the podcast here. You come from more of the Wall Street section of the of, of the business. How, tell us about your journey, if you wouldn't mind, about how you really came from Wall Street to wall diving now in Isla Mirada. Well, um, I got tired of chasing money is what it really amounted to. My first career for about 14 years was all about just that. And um, I fell in love with diving a long time ago, decades ago, and in the back of my mind, believed that there might be a future somewhere. And then more recently, as things evolved, um, I'm not, not as young as I used to be, and uh, thinking about you know retiring and realized that I've watched my precious reefs, the reason why I got into diving in the first place, had been dying before my very eyes. And so I decided to, instead of hang up the fins, to actually put something together to hopefully give something back for my daughter, your children, your grandchildren, and everyone else's. That was That is my main focus in my life now. And it's it keeps me going from one day to the next, for sure. And so I, long ago, I was involved with Wall Street, but that is a distant past and a distant memory now. Well, I think it's a, a great change for good. And in fact, uh, Mike, is it you who came up with the uh, the term of your nonprofit, I Care? Um, actually, um, I have to give credit to my co-founder's mother, who came up with the Came up uh, with a name. Came up with a name. So uh, I, I didn't come up with that. We spent hours trying to come up with some acronym, um, and uh, uh, but we decided that I care was the best, the best way to go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Leave it to a mother yeah. to find the golden ticket, as always. Hey, that's ter- terrific. Um, you know, now going back to Professor Feingold. Uh, Joshua, I was looking you up a while ago, and I, I saw uh, a really terrific article in the student newspaper in an issue about you, and I think it was called Secret Life was the title of it, and it was about your photography of corals. And I'm curious if you know what, how you got into that and what you've learned through your own personal uh, hobby, uh, if that's how it sort of augmented your scientific understanding of these uh, t- terrific ecosystems. Well, thank you for asking about that. It it actually is one of my uh, passions, uh, as well as something that supplements my science. Um, I think to be a balanced person, you can't be analytical about everything. 
And uh, one of the great pleasures in my life is to create, uh, you know, dramatic, vivid, compelling, um, you know, images of the natural world. And that couples pretty well with the science side of things, because then you can use those images to, you know, generate excitement and interest in, in, in the natural world, as well as actually document very important uh, changes over time. So uh, I guess one of my claims to fame is that I've been working on corals so long in the Galapagos Islands that I have about a 30-year record now of the, the various uh, communities and populations. And there have been some pretty profound changes uh, that we've been able to document. Um, so you mentioned earlier, you know, transferring knowledge to our students. And there, we, I'm working with a couple students right now who are following up on some particular communities there. Uh, one of them is now the only micro atoll community in the Galapagos Islands uh, from a, a colony, Paredes Lobata. And the second student is working on an update to a long-term population uh, survey of Postalopera damocornis or Postalopera elegans, depending on your uh, how you view the taxonomy of those organisms. And uh, it's heartening to see some pretty dramatic recovery. Uh, so obviously in a world where the populations are declining, it's, it's never bad to see some, something positive. And we're going to be presenting this information at the upcoming International Coral Reef Symposium. Uh, it's a virtual symposium uh, being held out of uh, Bremen, Germany this year. So uh, the photography is instrumental to document uh, change and to document a reality that you know exists now and then to hindcast that with what happened before. And I'll just say from a as a human being, it's important to have this kind of uh, of record because our memories tend to embellish. And uh, it never surprises me now when I go back to some of my old photographs and I was you know thinking about the community being in a particular state, and the reality is slightly different from that. So it's it's a nice to have a archived record that you know isn't subject to uh, change through time, so to speak. <laughs> That's a great observation and very true, Joshua. Um, so really neat to see, and I'm I'm glad the uh, student paper decided to profile you. Uh, another person with a fantastic story is uh, Jim Ritterhoff of Forest Blue, and Jim, I. Again, I was doing research on y'all, and I, I saw that you were named the 2019 Sea Hero of the Year by Seiko, Seiko Watches. And uh, what a great title that is. Um, how did that come about? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's one team, one fight, so it's a, it's a team effort. But, yeah, I got that award. That was um, uh, very flattering. Um but, you know, it's interesting. I grew up, I myself did not serve, right? But I grew up in a, um, in the military, but I grew up in a Pennsylvania steel town, very similar to the deer hunter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, you, I, I learned it, uh, my father was a World War II veteran, uh, actually was at Normandy. So I just grew up with a, a, a real sense of service. Uh, and it's one of the regrets, biggest regrets I have in my life is that I myself did not serve, right? But uh, I started diving in college back in the 80s, and it became very quickly, you know, the biggest passion in my life. Probably the second biggest passion would be, you know, um, helping our veteran community. So to be able to put these two things together, it's like I'm living the dream, you know. Oh, <laughs> so that's great. I, uh, 
you know, to be able to, to be able to make a difference and hopefully open some eyes and also positively change people's lives is, you know, it, it's just the greatest gift. So I'm, I'm every day. I'm, I'm just thankful. <laughs> well, I love your humility. That's, that, that's just terrific. And I think it's a secret to a really rewarding life and, um, and, and your sense of service and support to veterans, of course, being one, uh, I'm just admire and appreciate greatly. So thanks, Jim. Uh, Erica, I also, uh, you have a really neat history too, of course, PhD from the Rosensteel School. But um, I bet people uh, in, in the audience would be interested to know about the fact that you were a Noah C. Grant Knauss Fellow, which uh, is really prestigious to be even get there. And often many, many people, accomplished people have um, have, ped- have that pedigree, if you will. Can you share with us a little about uh, your experience and what that's done for you? Yeah, thanks so much, Admiral. I, I, I love this question. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people that are finishing graduate school, you know, if they don't know that academia is necessarily the right path for them, they they struggle a little bit. And I, I alluded to, you know, when, we, when you first started asking me questions like, that I was thinking about that when I was finishing my PhD. And, and I had found out from another graduate student who was a, a mentor of mine, and she she had gone through the Canals program, and she said, hey, you should look into this. And I thought, you know, if I really want to learn something, or if, I'm sorry, if I want to make a difference in coral reef conservation or conservation in general, I really better learn something about policy. Um, so I took a what I perceived as a really big risk um, and actually left academia to do this one-year fellowship, and I was actually placed on Capitol Hill in the U.S. Senate. It was on the um, U.S. Senate Commerce Commerce Science and Transportation Committee, a subcommittee for oceans, atmosphere, fisheries, and coast guard. So that's a bit of a mouthful, um, but it was such a great experience. I, you know, I went from sort of hard science in academia to hard policy. So that was a really big leap. But I think, you know, how our government works and how laws are enacted and how policy is made is is a black box to a lot of people. And so that year that I spent on, on the Hill working on ocean policy was completely invaluable to me and, and actually connected me to a lot of people that I work with today at NOAA and introduced me to, a, you know, a lot of people, including Jim here on the call from Force Blue. So, you know, it, it's, it's really, it was an incredible networking experience. And it's something that I, that I use um, to this day, even, you know, managing a, a monitoring program, thinking about policy and how policy works and, you know, how funding works. It was just a really cool experience. So I would encourage any young people or young students that are listening to this podcast to, um, to check that out. It's the Noah C. Grant Canals Fellowship. Right. Well, you are a shiny example of the success of that program, Erica. So thanks for sharing that. All right. You know, uh, I wanted to go to Kevin. And Kevin, I had mentioned that you were on CBS 60 Minutes, which I, I don't know the number, but I mean, the viewership has to be around, you know, 50 to 100 million and I'm kind of curious if your family or friends from school or how many people contacted you afterward after your really stellar appearance and, um, uh, and just what that experience was like for you. Sure. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting experience. I uh, we had received a call um, from CBS from one of the producers about having someone on the show who was, you know, intimately involved in the marine debris issue in the National Monument 
And so that, that fell upon me. This is when I was still with Noah. Uh, currently, um, I run a nonprofit to do this work. But when I was still with Noah, this is, this is the, um, the, the events that happened. Um, and I, I, I'm not a TV watcher. And so I didn't really know much about 60 Minutes. I'd seen the, you know, tick, 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 you know, trailers here and there over the years. But I uh, just thought of it as another news show and wasn't really familiar with the viewership, but I think you're right. There's many, 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 many millions of people that watch this show. So we flew up there to Midway, which is the one place within Papahanaumokuakea that you can access easily on a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service charter flight. And it was a really incredible ex experience because we got to really show and tell the story. Uh, and, and, and the 60 Minutes folks are really tremendous at telling a story without um, inventing the story. And so they just simply wanted to capture what was there. And so there was very little direction. It was just simply, what's the problem? What do you do about it? What can you tell us? And so we had a great couple of days really showing them the, the massive extent of the marine debris issue in the monument. And then the, and then the episode aired, you know, a couple months later. And um, it was overwhelming the amount of support that people showed for this issue. And what, what really struck me as exceptional was the amount of uh, folks that contacted me after the show who were from inland areas. So there are many, many people who not living near the ocean, you know, were hearing about this issue for the first time and how concerned they were about it and how much they cared. And I got connected with so many, you know, schools and organizations across sort of middle America who were really interested in this, in this issue. And even, you know, classrooms in South Dakota, for instance, who, who made it their mission to conduct local waterway cleanups so that it wouldn't make its way into the ocean downriver and that sort of thing. And so that's really what struck me as being maybe the best uh, thing that happened from that whole experience was that it reached a really wide audience that otherwise wouldn't be exposed to the issue. Wow, that's just great to hear. Well, well done to you. Again, I, I was with Noah at the time and I was incredibly proud to see you on national television. Uh, showing very well and being very well spoken wearing your shirt with a NOAA logo. Um, we were all proud of you for that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I had to get that uh, shirt especially made for that appearance. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Worked out just in time. Yeah. Hey, uh, and then, you know, kind of on a personal slash professional note, I want to go over to Michael Crosby. And I, I now help me out here, Michael. You know, I think when we last interacted in person, I don't think there was an aquarium associated with your uh, organization. And I, and I think I lost that, but I understand this was like a $130 million effort. So is that correct? And if so, when did you become a big businessman? <laughs> uh, um, what did I ever do to you to insult me? <laughs> no, no. Hey, you no I'm, te I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. Um, yeah, um, you know, as I said uh, earlier on, you know, Moat was born in, in 1955, um, and it was born as a research facility. And I always like to say it was, it was founded on three foundational pillars of passion, partnership, and philanthropy. Passion for our science that Dr. Jeannie Clark, our first director, had. Uh, partnership with the community, which remains so central um, to Moat today. And philanthropy, which is um, really the fuel for innovation, um, because as you know well, Admiral, you've been uh, on both sides of the, of the uh, federal government, and so have I, spent too many years in D.C., and the federal research enterprise has gotten pretty conservative in 
uh, a lot of what it funds in terms of um, risk taking. And so philanthropy is, uh, for instance, what allowed us to develop the new technologies in coral restoration or developing uh, potential therapies for 15 different types of human cancer and so many other things here at Moat. But we did actually begin having a small aquarium in 1980, long before I got here, when Mr. Moat um, decided it was very, very important for the public at large to learn more about the connections that they all have to the ocean and learn about the importance of the science that Moat and others do to ensuring the long-term conservation and sustainable use of these shared ocean resources. So Moat Aquarium actually began in 1980 and grew slowly over the years into what it is today, which is on one of our primary campuses uh, on City Island in Sarasota. But the heart and soul of Moat remains research. Uh, as I said, we're as large, if not larger, than many major universities, entire colleges of marine science. And we have gotten to the point now where we need to grow our research infrastructure rather significantly in order to deal with many of the challenges that are facing uh, the conservation and sustainable use of our oceans that only science um, can develop the answers for. And in order to grow that infrastructure, uh, the City Island campus we have here is one of the best sites I've ever seen in my career, any place in the world for a marine research institution. But it's one of the probably the worst for a major visitor attraction. And we do need to expand our ability to reach the public and help help create a more ocean literate public. Um, and so we have um, decided to give a rebirth of our of our aquarium at a new site that is much, much more accessible to a much broader cross-section of our community and visitors from all around the world. It'll be on the mainland. It is the new Moat Science Education Aquarium. And um, that is where we will be helping to translate and transfer the science uh, that we do um, to help the public understand those connections. Uh, because as many of the other guests on the podcast have said, uh, how important the, the oceans are for so many reasons. But it doesn't matter where you live, any place in the world, you are so connected to the oceans with literally every breath that you take, and the public doesn't understand that. And what I mean by literally with every breath that you take, 50 to 80% of the oxygen that each one of us are breathing right now comes from the ocean, not from the land. And if you want a good, healthy ocean, you need a good, healthy rainforest of the sea, which is our coral reefs. And it's important that the ocean um, remains something that people treasure. Uh, someone else said uh, that uh, you don't protect what you don't love and you don't love what you don't know. And so Moat C, our science education center, is about helping the public at large, as well as every single child in this entire region, have an opportunity for a hands-on experiential uh, science uh, activity as part of their STEM classes um, so that they can all have the opportunity to learn more about their connections to the ocean. And who knows, we may have the next Jeannie Clark among one of those classes that comes into our laboratories there. Oh, I'm sure of it, Michael. In fact, uh, you're making me, I think I'm, I'm coming up with the idea to have a separate episode just on aquarium. So thank you for that. And uh, for everybody, this has been so much fun for me. I mean, the only thing that could make it better is if we were all underwater on a reef. And, uh, but that'll, that'll come soon, I think. 
but uh, we're going to have to close, and I'm sorry to say that, but let me give each person um, a round for final thoughts. So why don't we go over to Mike Goldberg at I Care. Mike, anything that you want to close with? Well, I just am blessed to be here amongst you all, listening to all of your stories. Um, this has been a, a great learning experience for me, and it's it's wonderful to be associated with you all. Um, I, I do want to... Uh, there was this talk about partnerships and I just wanted to throw this in. I didn't get a chance earlier, but um, you know, we get to touch a lot of people when we're with my dive shop and, and uh, there was a family that was diving with us uh, about two months ago. Uh, a couple, uh, he works for Microsoft, worked for them for 18 years and got his two young children certified and they homeschool their kids and live in an RV and travel around. He's done quite well from having been with Microsoft for 18 years. And he was so moved by what we are doing that he took the presentations that we and my, and my co-founder and I have created and goes around the country now to different dive shops to explain what is happening to our reefs, how they can be involved, and how they can come down here and be hands-on with recreating our reefs. So when we talk about partnerships, you never know where it's gonna happen. You, know, you never know how, but that was one of the most inspiring moments, learning what he is doing and how he's involving himself and his family. So with that, thank you so much for the time, and I really appreciate it. What a great way to close there, Mike. Thank you. That's inspirational indeed. Well, how about Jim Ritterhoff with Forest Blue? Anything else that you want to share with us before we go? Oh, there's always stuff I want to share. <laughs> but I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll just put in a little plug for our film, uh, 100 Yards of Hope. It's the story of the, the restoration project that we worked on the last two years. If, if any of your listeners want to view it, uh, it's available now online for a little while. Uh, the website's floridascoralreef.org and then backslash 100, 100 yards of hope. Um, it's about 45 minutes long, but um, I think I think your, your listeners will enjoy seeing it. So it was a very well done uh, piece of entertainment. I couldn't agree more, Jim, and keep up the great work, hoping to be uh, featured in your next episode. Awesome, thank you. All right, how about uh, Professor Joshua Feingold at Nova Southeastern, uh, any closing thoughts for us? Uh, thank you, Admiral. I'd just like to encourage our listeners uh, to maintain their curiosity and connection to the natural world and uh, continue to be curious about what happens out there and, and, and engender the same kind of curiosity and connection with uh, the young people that are growing up. And thank you very much for including me in this podcast. Oh, it was a delight, Joshua. Thank you. And again, thanks for what you do for our next generation, especially for my daughter, uh, she's just, you've awakened her curiosity like you would never know. Well done. But well, I really appreciate hearing that. That's one of the, the best things that a professor can hear. So thank you. I love that. That's great. Uh, Erica Toll, Dr. Erica Toll, who was with me at NOAA and runs the National uh, Coral Reef Monitoring Program. Uh, anything else to share with us, Erica? Oh, thanks, Admiral. Sort of along the lines of what um, Joshua just said, you know, I just want to say if there are any young people or students listen to, listening to this episode and you're interested in coral reef conservation, don't shy away from it. Um, the 
the, the enormity of the threats to coral reefs means that there's space for everyone in this field and we need everyone to care about coral reef conservation. So whether your strength is data science, research, communication, management, coordination, or, or something else, we need your voice at the table. So thanks for having me, Admiral. This was a true honor. Wow, Erica, that was a really, really good point. And I'll go back and mention the fact that my daughter is not a marine science major. She's a communications major. But having minored in marine biology and being inspired by what uh, Professor Feingold has shared with her, uh, you know, she's going to be one of those important people who is going to contribute that aspect. And we know our communicators, our storytellers, um, that people like uh, Kevin O'Brien talked about at 60 Minutes, they are going to help get this message out to everybody and make this truly an all-hands-on-deck effort. And so with that, maybe I'll go to Kevin and ask Kevin anything else you want to share with us uh, from the Papahanaumokuakea Marine Debris Project. Sure. Uh, thanks. You know, um, if, if folks are interested in learning more about Papahanaumokuakea or the work that we do up there, we're going to be executing a, another large-scale marine debris removal mission in August in partnership with NOAA. And so... If you want to follow along and check it out, you can head over to our website, www.pmdphawaii.org, and follow along with the work that we're doing in the monument. There's many other resources there, too, for uh, learning more about the place and the incredible resources there. But I just did want to say thanks to everyone on the panel. There are so many people and organizations around the world working on different facets of the challenges that face our oceans. And I think it's just such a great way to tackle a problem, you know, diversity of thought uh, and, and tackling it from all sorts of different directions. So if you're if you're a listener out there who cares about the oceans, find find what you care about and find your niche. And even though you may not be working on a broad scale, you're contributing to the to the larger solutions that we will all arrive at together. So thank you to everyone here and thank you, Admiral, for the chance to uh, be on board. Very nice, Kevin. And that was a great point as well. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, Dr. Michael Crosby of Moat Marine Lab and Aquarium. Anything uh, you want to close with? Well, thank you, Admiral, for, for really pulling together a fantastic uh, panel. It's, it's been my honor to, to be, be a part of this. Um, for your listeners, I, I, I would only close by saying it, I know it can be incredibly disheartening when you learn about the um, situation with our coral reefs, not only in Florida, but all around the world, and uh, to watch them literally sliding into a state of functional extinction. But at the same time, I think it's very important. And I think what all of the panelists uh, on this podcast talked about um, was that our listeners should recognize um, that, that the global coral restoration fight is really entering a, a strategic new phase where we, we have identified the key genotypes for coral restoration uh, species. We have uh, built a new Noah's Ark for preservation and expansion of coral uh, genetic diversity. Um, we have closed the life cycle, the complete life cycle of many coral species now and can bring back even the massive, very slow-growing corals, bring them back and restore 100-year-old dead coral heads in literally two to five years. And as you've heard on this podcast, there are so many wonderful, very fruitful partnerships that exist between 
um, organizations like the ones on this podcast, other NGOs, local businesses, government agencies, and communities. Um, and I think now it is really a time that we all celebrate together um, and really ramp up all of these efforts because it will take us all working together. But we have the science, we have the capability to turn the tide on this and bring these coral reefs back um, to the amazing rainforest of the sea that they used to be. Absolutely, and great way to close there, Michael. Uh, let's do this. So thank you all, you were fantastic. This was such an enjoyable panel and, and it was enlightening and it was fun. And this was the fourth leg of our journey on the American Blue Economy podcast. And we explored many aspects of the national treasures that are coral reefs. I want to thank everyone. I want to thank our sponsors at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. Please join us for our August episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we're going to focus on sustainable seafood and fisheries, which is really a perfect topic to follow up here on this coral reef episode as coral reefs are the nurseries for our fisheries. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates, and I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Bye-bye.